And I think very often that we ethical vegans believe that if somebody stops eating animals for some reason other than the animals, that they're just not doing it right. But once somebody stops eating animals, they become much more open to animal issues. I have seen this happen literally thousands of times, that once you're no longer contributing to the animal abuse industry, then you can look at animal abuse with new eyes because you're no longer feeling guilty. Hi friends, and welcome to another episode of the PBN Podcast. I'm your host, Robbie Lockie. On this week's episode, we have my very good friend, Victoria Moran. Victoria is the author of 13 books addressing veganism, spirituality, and health. These include the best-selling Creating a Charmed Life, The Essential Guide to Going Veg, and of course, Main Street Vegan. She is a professional speaker and a two-time Oprah Winfrey guest. A certified holistic health counselor, Victoria holds the T. Colin Campbell Center for Nutrition Studies Certificate in Plant-Based Nutrition and she is the director of Main Street Vegan Academy, training vegan lifestyle coaches on how to change the world. Victoria is also the host of a weekly Main Street Vegan podcast, which has featured health experts, psychologists, activists, and many authors. Victoria and her husband, musician and business consultant, William Melton, live with their rescue dog, Forbes, in New York City. I absolutely love this episode. I know you guys will too. Victoria is a wonderful woman and full of joy, spirituality, and kindness. She is such a joy and a pleasure to speak to. Every time I talk with Victoria, I always come away smiling and feeling very at peace. So, I hope you enjoy this. It's a great episode. If you do enjoy it, please don't forget to comment, like, and share, and leave us a review on iTunes too. It really helps get the message out there. I hope you have a wonderful day, and please do enjoy this episode. Thanks so much for joining us on the podcast, Victoria. It's a real pleasure. It's always wonderful to speak with you, Robbie. Your work amazes me. Thank you for taking the time and thank you for being you. You have uh, been a huge inspiration to me over the years, all the work that you've done, all the the efforts that you've put into spreading the vegan message. It's uh, it's something that continues to fill me with inspiration. So thank you. I wanted to say that before we begin. Oh, well, that means a lot. I think that one of the great joys of this work, and I know it can sometimes be discouraging. You know, We know a lot about what goes on in the world that most people avoid knowing. And I think we're always uh, faced with the the specter of extreme sadness. And yet there's also so much joy in knowing that we touch one another and, and we inspire one another and all this great work that happens, we all have a little part in. Feed your body well and health shows up. Guaranteed? Of course not. This is Earth, where guarantees are rare and usually limited, but a noteworthy percentage of the time, people who embrace compassion feel that their lives become richer and fuller. And with some predictability, folks who go vegan, that is vegan with lots of fresh produce and very few cupcakes, find that their health improves. Weight issues stop being issues. Diseases blooming on the family tree often don't make it to the bud stage. And when one does this for some time, the aging process seems to proceed in slow motion. Time passes, of course, but its effects are buffered by antioxidants and phytochemicals and the delightful conviction that simply getting up and having a kind breakfast is doing some good in the world. But before we dive into everything you're doing now with your life uh, and all the wonderful things that you've achieved uh, in the re- in recent years, let's go back in time and tell us your vegan story. Where did you discover it? Have you always been vegan? Um, how did it all begin? 
Wow. I guess I've always been vegan in my soul, but certainly not in, in my life. I do remember the first time I heard the word vegetarian. I came in from, gosh, first grade, I guess I was five years old. I had learned the four food groups, which in the United States at that time was the nutrition gold standard. And it basically implied that half of the food that we eat was supposed to come from animals. So I recited this to my my nanny. She was a rather curmudgeonly grandmother-aged woman. And after I recited my newly acquired knowledge, she said, humph. There are some people who never eat any meat and they're called vegetarians. And I could take you to a restaurant that serves hamburgers made out of peanuts and you'd think you were having beef. And I remember thinking, oh my gosh, there's so much in this world that I don't know. And I have a sneaking suspicion my teachers don't know it either. And so this is the 1950s and I'm in Kansas City, Missouri, which is the middle of the United States where the stockyards were second only to those in Chicago. So I'm living in this completely beefy part of the world, but that word vegetarian really resonated. So when I was in my teens and started reading about yoga, I was fascinated that it said if you were going to be serious about yoga, you had to practice ahimsa, you had to practice reverence for life and not eat meat. So that I was able to do. I did move to London to go to fashion school when I was 18. It was a lot easier to be vegetarian in London than in Kansas City at that time. And I'd never heard of of veganism. That was still something that uh, was yet to come. And when I did learn about it, it made perfect sense. Intellectually, what went on with the cows and the chickens, it was just untenable. You know, I I had to be vegan, but it was really, really hard for me. I had an eating disorder at that time, a binge eating disorder. And when I would stand in the convenience store in the middle of the night trying to get my fix, it was just impossible to me at the time to be vegan. And then I had all kinds of remorse and and would try to start over. And it took me years. It, It literally took me, I guess I heard about veganism in 1972. And I finally made the commitment, the the full-time commitment. I'd been vegan for, you know, three weeks, three months, six months, but to really, really do it for keeps. Uh, It was 1983. I had gotten into the recovery program of Overeaters Anonymous and realized for the first time that I actually did have choice in, in what I ate, that the food didn't run me any longer. And once that was the case, I was able to choose vegan. And this also coincided with the fact that my daughter was an infant and I wanted very much to raise her vegan, which I have been able to do. And um, that was 36 years ago. And uh, I'm 
very, very grateful. What's different about being vegan now than in the early 80s? People finally know what it is. And because they've heard good things about it, that it can prevent heart disease, you don't usually get met with, oh my gosh, you're vegan, I'm so worried about you. I think that we age too rapidly in this culture because we don't treat ourselves well. We're eating food that's dead, food that's foodless, and then we run ourselves ragged. You've obviously experienced a multitude of changes, not only personally, but on a, a globally in the last 30 years. Talk us through the difference between being vegan 30 years ago and being vegan now. Yeah. Well, one of the wonderful experiences that I had in my life was earning a fellowship when, when I went to college. I went to college late, so I was in my late 20s. And I had a fellowship for foreign study. And that meant I could study anything as long as I left North America to do it. So I went to the UK to study vegans. And this would have been 1980 or 81. It, it was another world. So this university gave me money to go do this research as part of a degree I was working on in comparative religions because there were so few vegans in the U.S. It made sense to fund somebody to go study them in a place where there were more of them and closer together. <laughs> so that alone was just astonishing because now the U.S. is full of vegans. They're in every city and college town and lots of in-between places as well. So um, when I went to the UK and I was still not full-time vegan, you know, I'd go through these periods of being vegan and thinking I was vegan and then I, I would fall back. But I went there with oh, just so much anticipation and admiration for these incredible people who had been part of the founding of the vegan movement. So we're talking the very early 80s, a lot of those people from the 1940s who had founded the Vegan Society, who had been part of the early days, were still alive. I did not get to interview Donald Watson, but I did meet wonderful uh, vegans like uh, Eva Bat and Serena Coles and a woman named Kathleen Janaway, who was at that time um, the secretary of the Vegan Society. And she told me that in the early days, and she said it, of course, with her wonderful aristocratic uh, British accent, which I couldn't uh, pretend to emulate, but I'll try. She said, we didn't know if our bones would disintegrate or if we'd perish in a fortnight. We did this out of pure, disinterested compassion. And I was just in such awe because for me, I was thinking things like, oh gosh, this is a lot of carbs. I'll probably gain weight. And yet here were these people entering into this compassionate commitment, not even knowing if they would live to tell. So we know things now. So in terms of what you're saying, changes that I've seen, we know that this can be a perfectly helpful way to live. And there's so much information that it can be the most helpful way to live when, when choices are, are such uh, to, to make it that way. There's also food available. I mean, when I came to the UK to study vegans, there was Plamil. It was so amazing to me. You guys actually had a vegan milk. We didn't have anything like that in the States. 
the Seventh Day Adventists made some kind of really sweet soy powder, and there was another one some guy in Ohio sold, and he would mail it to you in a plastic bag, and you just kind of had to hope it was soy powder and not, I don't know, talcum. Uh, so yeah, it's it, it's it's so doable now. And, and I think that's why it's just growing exponentially every day, and that's so exciting. Whose scene species is in the movie? Mark DeVries' movie? Do you remember the scene of the blessing of the animals, which, of course, is lots of dogs, a few cats, and then somebody pulls out this big poster of chickens in a battery egg operation, suffering terribly. The look on the face of the clergywoman, that look of incredulity is really worth seeing this movie as well as lots of other reasons so what we want to do is be able to ask that question what's your stand on animals and have them have an answer we want to be able to say what's your stand on food and have more than we want to feed the hungry of course we want to feed the hungry but we also want to look at what is the kind of food that is going to change this planet in the way that all people of goodwill really, when they think about it, want it to be changed. Now, obviously, you mentioned, uh, and you, we've discussed this together in the past as well, about your eating disorder and your personal experiences of, of struggle. Have you found that being, or did you find that being vegan and kind of taking this life path transformed the way you saw yourself and the way you viewed who you were as a person? Oh, absolutely. Because it let me see that I could live up to my own values. There was a wonderful spiritual teacher at that time named Peace Pilgrim, and she walked across the United States with all of her possessions in a few little pockets. And her message was that we won't have world peace until we have inner peace. And something that she was famous for saying was, when you live up to the highest light you have, more light will be given to you. And during all that time, when I fell away from veganism, fell away from rational eating with, with my disorder, well, there's a line actually in, in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, it talks about a pitiful and incomprehensible demoralization. And that was what I'd felt every time that happened. But once I was really able to go forth a day at a time and be vegan and then raise my daughter vegan, it convinced me of how much power each of us has as an individual to, to take a stand and, and to make a difference. And we have all these ripples. And it's interesting now, you know, I've written a lot of books and I do things that get my words out to a lot of people. But at that time, I was just me. <laughs> I mean, uh, my my first book did come out pretty early, 1985, but there were so few vegans then, almost nobody read it. So it was pretty much just me in my life with the people around me. But even then, people saw that I was taking this stand and people respected that. And when my daughter would go visit friends, the, the parents would always accommodate her veganism. And I think it's like anything else. If you see somebody doing something that they really believe in, even if you haven't awakened to that particular ethic yet yourself, there's a certain respect 
it's a magical thing. And I felt it certainly much more in those days because now I'm somewhat in the vegan bubble. I'm around vegans all the time. And even when I'm around non-vegans, they know about veganism and they'll always say something like, well, uh, my daughter does that, or I've thought about doing that. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's just wonderful to, to know that it was doable even when it was difficult and now it's super doable. We've seen so much change in the last few years, even just the last three years here in the UK. We've had an explosion of commercial products in this sphere, in this vegan opportunity that's risen up. Um, however, as, as someone who's sort of been, been doing this for many, many years, as you've said, have you seen a, sh a shaping and a shifting of the way people convey this message? Because there is that archetypal angry vegan that is outraged and in, enraged by what's going on with animals, what's happening in the world. But there seems to be more, has been more of a shift towards a more moderate approach where people are more open and they are listening. Um, they don't necessarily adopt the lifestyle, as you said, but they are more in allegiance to us. Have you experienced that shift or has it always been like that? Well, I predated the angry vegan. So when I first heard, I was maybe eight years ago, I heard about Angry Vegans. Somebody was going to do a class called Yoga for Angry Vegans. And I remember <laughs> thinking, well, who would come to that? And then I came to see that that was indeed a thing. So when I first learned about veganism, when I first became vegan, there were so few of us, we couldn't afford to be angry. I mean, we could be hurt by what we saw, but we were such outsiders. So I didn't see the anger at all. I think the anger came later. But what's happening now is that we're recognized. And it's very interesting. One of the things to me, Robbie, is that I see how big the world is. And I see how big a proposition this is. I think there was a time when I thought it was simple. It just as one individual can become vegan, I thought, well, once this information is really out there, then billions of individuals will become vegan. It, it, it seemed like it was going to be fairly cut and dried. But what I see now is that there's a lot more to it. And the more I see it growing, which is wonderful, the more I also see how many striations and variations there are. I see how vegan food is accepted as a thing. It's accepted as a cuisine. And here in New York City, where I live, there are many, many wonderful vegan restaurants. And most of the people who are dining there are not vegan. They go out for vegan the way they would go out for Italian or Chinese or some other kind of cuisine. There's also acceptance of vegans as people who have made a certain choice. And I think that we're lumped in with other people who make choices. Um, we're lumped in with environmentalists, which of course, many of us, most of us perhaps are environmentalists, but you know, we're, we're, we're seen as people who are really taking a stand on a social issue and that's great, but you know, that's kind of extreme, but at least people know we're there and at least we're accepted. And at least when you ask if something is vegan, most people know what you mean. So 
it's interesting. And and I, I love what you talked about that it's a little bit more open. There's a, a little bit less of the, these are the rules and you have to do it my way or you can't do it at all. I think we also risk losing something with, with the easing up, but we're just going to have to let this thing play out because this is the era of the animals. This is the time when people are standing up for them and this is going to keep on going. It's a real tough one because I don't think it's a black and white answer. I think there are a lot of more, um, even, um, I hate the word evangelical, but evangelical vegans who are more rigid in their uh, stance. And ultimately, we would all love to see a vegan world. We would love to see all animals free and no more, you know, no use of animals in agricultural fashion. But we do live in a world where it is, it's pervasive um, and ubiquitous in everything that we do. I often say to people, a thousand vegan meals and one non-vegan meal is better than no vegan meals at all, right? And right. <laughs> there is this emphasis on perfection. And of course, you know, veganism is a moral baseline where we say, if you're going to be vegan, then you shouldn't have any animal products. But I think there is there is a problem there where we create um, this sort of club mentality, which says that, you know, it's a small club anyway. And by creating that perfectionism, we make a small club even smaller. You can't come in if you're not 100% perfect 100% of the time. You know, I applaud my non-vegan friends who go out for vegan meals, who buy uh, vegan beauty products, but they don't call themselves vegan. And they're afraid to call themselves vegan because they're worried that if they slip up, they're going to be publicly lynched, which happens often. <laughs> well, that's part of the culture uh, at the present time, uh, inside and outside veganism. The idea that everyone is supposed to be perfect in every way. And they were supposed to have been perfect when they were 17 years old. It, it's, it's a very strange w way of being. It is. We call it, we're calling it cancel culture, aren't we? It's a canceling each other out. Cancel culture has, has become quite pervasive in our society on all fronts. Yeah, it, it's a tough thing because, of course, we want to be as consistent as we can, certainly with something like veganism, where it's not just about us. So I have several disciplines in my life that I really want to do, and they're basically about me. I want to exercise. I want to meditate. But if I don't, it really doesn't harm anybody else. And yet with eating animal products, someone else is involved. So of course the standard is higher and it's important that we aim to be as consistent as possible. But things get a little bit sticky sometimes. I mean, my husband was in an accident a few weeks ago and he's in the hospital and they've given him pain medication and other things there that I know are not vegan. You know, all medications were tested on animals. Many contain animal ingredients. And yet, you know, what are we going to say when we're in hospital? No, I'm vegan. I choose to suffer. I mean, I, I think some people have done that. Certainly some of those uh, early vegans uh, did that very sort of thing. But I, I think it's also something where we're not going to be 100% perfect all the time. And we need to hold ourselves, I think, to the highest standard for ourselves and allow other people to 
come to this in the way that they come to it. Nobody ever became vegan because somebody else shamed them. There is an attitude, though, that shaming people, and you do see it on more on social media, that shaming people to change is a solution or one of the solutions. But everything I've ever learned, and I'm, you know, I've not been on this planet long. I've been, I'm, I've been here forty years. Still got many more years ahead of me, but I have never experienced someone changing their life because they were shamed or screamed at by another person. But yet there is this attitude of, you know, shame being a powerful tool or almost like a weapon to bludgeon people into, and I don't use that word lightly, bludgeon people into making a change. And it comes into things like meat or fur, for example, which are very different in many ways, but obviously still part of an animal. If we, if we look at fur, for example, it's completely unnecessary in today's modern world. And I can understand why people want to scream and shout and shame people who wear fur. But I think there is an attitude that if you want people to take off that coat, we have to start with educating them and teaching them about why it's unnecessary to invest in that kind of cruelty. However, as Joshua Joshua Katcher told me uh, on a previous podcast, there are many people who enjoy the idea of being cruel. They actually get off on it, that there are humans with a sort of psychopathic quality where cruelty and the idea of opulence from something like fur is almost an opiate, that they revel in it. And that's very interesting. And I don't think that's something we could ever change, no matter how much we scream and shout and try to shame people. It almost has the opposite effect. Would you agree? Yes. And and, and Joshua, good heavens, I admire him so much. <laughs> what an amazing, amazing young man. I think that that's a small percentage of the population. And I think that as we evolve, there's a wonderful phrase I learned from a spiritual teacher many years ago. He talked about the upward progression of the universe and being part of the upward progression of the universe. And and I, I do believe that over time, the admiration for that sort of personality will, will so diminish that I think it may become um, an evolutionary uh, bit of history, but I think it's absolutely right for now. There were a couple of things that you reminded me of in, in this last bit where when you talk about shaming, I think that shaming works very well if you're part of a very small culture and it's the only culture there is. So for example, in the Amish community, they do shunning. So when someone has done something that is outside of their values, they ignore this person. Their family cannot speak to them. Their family, their community will not eat with them or worship with them. It's just as if they, they're invisible. Well, if that's your community, it's the only life you know, then that's going to be really effective. But in something like veganism, we are not the only option out there. We are not the only community. If someone is shamed by vegans, then they can say, wow, I don't want anything to do with these vegans. I'm going to go be a, a keto or a paleo or just a regular person. So I think that we, we still have to be careful. I talked about uh, predating the angry vegan. We're still a minority. And so many of the things that get us all excited irritate other people. 
So for example, a Joaquin Phoenix is just exquisite Academy Awards acceptance speech. I was over the moon. Everybody I know was over the moon. And then all of these other people start writing these vast editorials about how terrible it was that he brought up animals in the same paragraph as women's rights and gay rights. And and yet, to those of us who see it, how could you possibly be a feminist and drink milk? When if if we have solidarity with with mothers and with this amazing mammalian gender that can produce milk for our young, and it just seems like it's it's hyper feminism, and yet not everybody sees it. It's frustrating. And you said educate. I think that's the most important word. It's so important. Education is vital, um, but the way we deliver and disseminate information is so essential. My favorite phrase, one of my favorite phrases at the moment or kind of ideas is unlocking realization. And that is something that is very interesting to me because there's lots of things in life that change all the time. We as people are constantly shifting and changing and altering our views, our opinions, our beliefs. 10 years ago, 15 years ago, if you had said to me that I would be a full-time vegan advocate fighting for the rights of animals and people's health, I would have laughed. I would have thought that's interesting, but that's not me. I would never have even thought of being involved in something like this. I I didn't really know any vegans. I thought vegetarians were just annoying people. (laughs) But I watched Earthlings and the script in that film that laid out the realization, unlocked the realization within me of who and what we are as people was an incredible and transformative experience. And because of that, I am so sure that with the right information, with the right kind of education, anyone can transform their view, their belief, their understanding of who they are and the impact they have on the world. And I think it's a big and important part of of being a teacher or being an advocate is to understand how to deliver our message and how to wrap it up, basically. Let's take meat is murder, for example. That phrase, meat is murder, may seem obvious to a lot of vegans who see animals as individuals, as personalities, uh, as singular entities. But to the vast majority of people out there, animals are just objects. They're just things to be chopped up into pieces and consumed. So when they hear and see the words and the phrase meat is murder, they don't respond well to it because they immediately assume these humans are trying to compare humans and animals. And in their mind, humans are nothing like animals. Animals are for eating or for pets or to ride on. And it's fascinating when you see that realization shift in a person. It's a remarkable and wondrous thing, don't you think? Oh, absolutely. And we don't know what is going to speak to a particular individual. Here in the States, the health part of um, plant-based eating, they like to call it. Uh, Dr. Joel Kahn and I were having a talk not long ago, and we decided botanical. We like that <laughs> instead of plant-based. <laughs> but, I like that. Yeah. But but there's a lot of people are awakened that way. So you mentioned earthlings. And, and when I talk to people, when I, I'm out speaking and, and find out what caused them to go vegan, earthlings is huge. But so is forks over knives. 
And so is a skinny bitch of that 2005 book with the title that nobody would have thought was about veganism. It's really interesting to see what reaches people. I remember um, a gentleman who used to speak for the the school that I run, Main Street Vegan Academy, and, and he would talk about when you let someone know that you're vegan, you, you want to watch their body language and watch what's happening to them when you talk about why. So if you say, I'm, I'm vegan because I understand that animals are individual individuals and it is not my place to take their life or liberty or cause them suffering. And if you just get a blank stare, then you're talking with someone who thinks that animals are basically things. And then if you add on, and of course, now we know that animal agriculture causes more global warming gases to be released into the atmosphere than all transportation combined. And if they lean forward with that, and if their eyes open, like, oh gosh, that's new information for me, then you follow that. Or if you say, oh, I used to have very high cholesterol, my doctor wanted me to go on Lipitor, and now my cholesterol is perfect, and you get a response from that, then you know that that reached them. And I think very often that we ethical vegans believe that if somebody stops eating animals for some reason other than the animals, that they're just not doing it right. But once somebody stops eating animals, they become much more open to animal issues. I have seen this happen literally thousands of times, that once you're no longer contributing to the animal abuse industry, then you can look at animal abuse with new eyes because you're no longer feeling guilty. These are foods that either have a super complex of nutrients, vitamins, minerals, the things that we recognize, or also of these kind of invisible elements, these phytochemicals, these antioxidants that keep you young and fight disease. This is a Peruvian root. This was used by the Incas and it increases libido, particularly in men, and it has been known as nature's Viagra. Okay, well, I'm taking all that home. On the topic of personal transformations, you've written many books. One of them being, is it Younger by the Day? <laughs> yes. 365 Days to Rejuvenate Your Body and Revitalize Your Spirit. And there's a quote in there I love which says, At 43, I bought my first house. I wanted one like crazy. A house meant family, a happy childhood for my little girl. And for the little girl inside me, I was soon overwhelmed by the upkeep and overcome by the yard work. In the bright light of closing, it was obvious. It was never a house I wanted. It was what a house symbolized to me. We live in this world where we're constantly being told that to be happy, we need stuff. We need things. We need material possessions. And then we'll only ever be complete without all these things. You know, people, vegans like us, are not immune to that, even though I think when a lot of us become vegan, we let go a lot of things. How has your life and your storytelling or your writing kind of evolved and shaped your understanding of of what is happiness and what is that that deep joy that we are all capable of? Oh, what a wonderful question. I think that one thing that's happened in terms of my writing certainly is that I'm a vegan in all my writing and through and through. So you mentioned Younger by the Day. That book came out in 2004. I was vegan then. I had been vegan for 
long time by then, but in some of the health chapters allowed that people eat other things and that I didn't insist upon veganism. I, I would not do that today because today for me, that is a moral imperative. And I've had to evolve into that. And some people would maybe say devolve. <laughs> they might say I should still be offering alternatives to people who aren't ready to be vegan yet. But for me, my joy could not be complete without telling the whole truth. So I think that's one of the things. I think this whole looking at life as an incredible spiritual journey, and that certainly doesn't mean that a person has to be religious or, or mystical or any of those sorts of things. But to me, it's all about meaning. For me to get up in the morning and put forth the effort to make it through the day, I have to know that there's some meaning here. And so the idea that my life can be used for some good, my life can be used to help somebody, that I can open just personally to more of that meaning and, and more of that light that Peace Pilgrim said, live up to the highest light you have and more will be given you. So I think approaching life every day as an adventure and understanding, like I wrote about that my first house, that it really is about what it symbolizes. You know, we talked about fur earlier. For so many people still today, fur symbolizes something. We tried to pass a fur ban here in New York City, and we're going to try again. And surprisingly, a lot of, of the backlash on that came from African-American people who wear furs to church on Sunday as a statement of where they've come in life and what they've overcome. That's something that I have to listen to and try to understand and see where we can come to some kind of meeting of the minds because it's not about the house. It's not about the fur coat. It's about what those things mean to each of us as individuals. So you've written many books, as, as you said. Um, what have been some of the sort of highlights uh, of, of being an author? What have you enjoyed most about it? Oh, it, it's the most wonderful thing. The, the first time that I realized that being a writer was just the coolest thing ever was when I was 14 years old and I had a press card for a teen magazine and I got into my first Beatles press conference. Now, I was an overweight, kind of frumpy kid <laughs> and I was standing six feet from the Fab Four <laughs> I mean, it was so clear to me, you better keep up with this writing thing because this is going to take you places nothing else will. And it, it truly has. There's, there's power in expressing ourselves out into the world. And what's exciting about right now is that through the internet, there are more democratic ways to express oneself. And, and so more and more people have a platform for getting out there in the world. For me, as an author, books have a kind of gravitas uh, that I just have tremendous respect for. 
I, I don't know how much longer books are going to be a thing. I hope in some form forever. I don't know. I'm just glad that I got in on it while they are still something physical. <laughs> and, and to have somebody like a woman came up to me in Omaha, Nebraska several years ago, and she had a tattered copy of my book, Creating a Charmed Life. And she said, I want you to know that through reading this book, I was able to leave the abusive alcoholic. I was able to finish school and get my kids back. And you hear something like that, that comes from something that you did on your computer. I mean, I wrote words and this woman's life was transformed. And I'm sure there were many other influences, but to even just be a little part of that, it's absolutely stunning. It is. There's a magical quality to words. And as one of my spiritual teachers, have you ever heard of Seth, Jane Roberts? Oh, and yes, Seth? absolutely. What Seth said, you know, the magic of words on the page, uh, you read the words and the words seem to be contained on the page, but they're not because the page is just ink and paper. The actual symbols, the words, they transmit information. So if the words are not stored on the page, where are they actually? And that is the wonder of consciousness and of imagination and creativity is that we manipulate a staggering pyramid of symbols and place them on a, on a page. And our audience, through the wonders of the human mind, is able to decipher every single symbol and rebuild it within their own minds. And that's what your job is as an author or a public speaker, is to manipulate this pyramid of symbols communicate it in either words or symbols on a page and then the audience rebuilds it within their mind and if you do it right and if you do it in the in such a way that triggers the right memories or the right emotions you can completely transform a person's life or unlock that realization i guess i was talking about where you can help a person lose weight or help a person leave an abusive relationship or help a person start a business there's so many interesting things that go on within the minds of human beings so many things we don't even fully understand. And I think that's the wonder of communication, uh, the complexity of human communication, which in my opinion is one of our greatest gifts, I think. It is such a gift. And I've seen that as a speaker as well. People will come up to me after a talk and say, well, when you talked about whatever, when you talked about relationships, that, that really spoke to me. And I'm, I'm going back over my talk and thinking, did I say anything about relationships? And I've talked with other speakers and they've had the same experience. If, if somebody needs something, they're, they're going to get it out of your words. <laughs> it's magical. And I never heard it described in the way that you did. So thanks so much for that. My pleasure. Moving on from books, you're also a deeply spiritual person. You and I have crossed paths on the uh, topic of spirituality and religion. Well, you are part of a film project called A Prayer for Compassion, and it's a wonderful film directed by Thomas Jackson. And uh, we had a premiere in London, which was amazing. It's a, a fascinating look into the religions of the world and the notion that most well, all religions focus on compassion. And uh, the conversation is about compassion. But yet there is this cognitive dissonance that happens where many, many deeply religious people don't see animals in the way that they see other people. So they don't afford them that compassion. Talk us a bit about 
being involved in this film and uh, how it felt to be a part of something so beautiful. Oh, sure. Well, uh, Thomas Jackson actually called into my, my podcast is actually a live radio show first, the Main Street Vegan podcast. And he called in and, and asked if I would produce his film. And my first thought was, I don't know how to produce a film. But then he said, it's about veganism and spirituality. And then it was like, no, no, why did you say that? Because now I have to say yes, because those really are my, my two passions. I think it's very important to reach out to people who are religious, spiritual, mystical, philosophical, seeking, searching, whatever it is, because that means that there is a part of, of that person's being that, that is seeking something higher. And part of that has to be this active, practical compassion. When, when I think about the way that religion is practiced in most places and and the kind of worldview of, of a great many people who are religious, you're absolutely right. Animals are left out. And the same is true with people who are not religious, but spiritual. It's like, oh, you know, I'm not part of a religion. You know, I'm not part of, you know, the Crusades or anything like that. I'm just a new age or a now age or whatever it is. And then they don't get the animal part either. So I think it's just very, very important to, to listen to people, to, to find out why they're where they are, what led them to this kind of study, this kind of seeking, what they're gaining from going back to the Catholic Church or from reading Eckhart Tolle or from going to India and finding a guru, whatever it is, What's that doing for them? And how is that making them more compassionate toward themselves and others? And what would it be like to expand that compassion? And where it gets tricky with religious and spiritual people is we, we learn spirituality from others. And, and so it, it's translated through through people, through spiritual teachers, through friends, through through writers. And very often we get a lot of spiritual information and inspiration from people who aren't vegan. It makes it tough. It's like, but but this person, this person who opened up my eyes, who opened my world, who who gave me God, isn't vegan. That's a tough one to get through for um religious and spiritual people. And I think that uh, Thomas does a beautiful job in A Prayer for Compassion of speaking with people from so many different spiritual paths who have come to veganism and how they've made that connection. And I do want to say that A Prayer for Compassion is uh, right now available on Vimeo and Thomas is working to get it on Amazon. And I so wish I could just say, go to Amazon, it's right there. Well, it will be soon, but right now it's on, on Vimeo. So if you'd like to watch it, thank you. We'll put the link to that in the description. Thank you. Yeah, I've seen seen the film, obviously, and I absolutely loved it. And I recommend it. Anyone who's got any religious friends or spiritual friends who aren't vegan yet, who 
are perhaps, as they might call, low-hanging fruit. <laughs> thinking about it, thinking about making that change. I think it's a good film. There's, it's not about you know, violence towards animals specifically. It's more about people and about belief. I think we live in a world where there's a lot of expectations placed on us as spiritual people, um, and I think we're all different and we're all different views. And I think it shows that wonderful kaleidoscope of belief. And I believe, as a Buddhist and as a vegan and as a spiritual person, that you know, veganism and and, and compassion for all living things should be or must be at the centre of our entire society because i think if it doesn't and it if it doesn't become the center i think we lose I mean, we will continue to lose the preciousness of life i always feel and i i've discussed this before about sentience and consciousness that the universe birthed us each and every one of us are the universe made self-aware i think it's carl sagan who said that and we all look out into the world and we experience the world, the colors and the smells and the tastes and the sounds. And animals do the same. They see, they smell, they taste, they dream, they feel. They have unique personalities. Even, goodness, ants have unique personalities, the tiniest little creatures in this world. And most humans are oblivious to this fact. They're, they see animals going about their days. And in fact, several centuries ago, people thought animals were automatons, mindless beings, sort of stuck on a track going around in circles, just operating like almost like a biological machine. They were completely unaware of the, the inner world of animals. And sentient life or conscious life, in my opinion, is precious that every single little baby lamb and every single little rabbit or uh, badger or horse that comes into the world and looks out at its mother is a gift a precious gift that the the gift of consciousness of sentience is priceless because we do not know whether it exists anywhere else in the universe we obviously would like to think it does it's a big universe <laughs> and if we were alone that would be very sad but what if we were what if this planet is the only place in the universe at this time of course where conscious life, sentient life, self-aware life exists, and we're destroying it all, we're killing it all, and potentially ourselves in the meantime. So I think for me, being vegan isn't just about protecting animals, it's about protecting the beauty and the majesty of sentient life, that it is something so precious. We as humans, in my my opinion, and I think Seth, my one of my spiritual teachers, has said this, humans are have always meant to be the custodians of this beautiful garden uh, as of Eden, as the Christians may call it. But um, we we have to uh, to see it like that. And I think without that, it's just meaningless. Life is just meaningless, expendable, like the many animals, unfortunately, that are chewed up by the machine and the monster that is factory farming. Yes, and we deny ourselves so much color and and depth and and richness if if the animals have no meaning if, if people outside our own circle that that we care about have no meaning then it it's just as if we started out in technicolor and we ended up in kind of sepia <laughs> that there there's just such a, a lack the closer we get to selfishness. I remember reading this little doggerel once. It said, he who lives for himself alone lives for the meanest mortal known. It's like that when it's like, well, it's only about humans. Oh, come on. 
you know, let's let's open it up here and see this this incredible beauty and majesty and the awe of it. And you don't have to be spiritual in a religious sort of way to be in awe of life. And I think um, when Compassion, the uh, the film uh, came out, A Prayer for Compassion, some vegans were very concerned that it was a film that was trying to make vegans be spiritual. But that's not it. You know, you you how you see the world and the meaning of life and all that is absolutely um, personal, and and that's another wonderful rainbow. I think the whole uh, array of, of beliefs and and ways of being in this world also provide a great deal of, of depth and and color, and yet this this sense that the more we can love, the more we can cherish the more we can be in awe, the more fully alive we are. I think love and compassion and friendship and connectedness of of uh, the human race is what will hopefully ultimately save us from our untimely demise, which if we continue our, along our current path, it uh, might not be too far away. But uh, let's hope the uh, the young'uns can, uh, can turn things around. Definitely the generation after me um is is a has a fire in their belly when it comes to the planet and you know Greta Thunberg's generation the sort of 16 17 18 year olds it's been quite incredible to see so many very young people stepping up and standing up and letting their voices be heard in their millions um i just uh, it's very hard sometimes to remain positive in in the face of so much adversity i mean the world's always obviously always been a challenging place living on earth has always been a challenge i think just because there are more people now and there's we're more connected with technology we see it more quickly when disaster struck you know uh, 200 years ago people probably only heard about it five or six years later <laughs> because of the way things traveled but now when when an earthquake hits or a tsunami lands we hear about it within seconds which is quite overwhelming for a lot of people we're currently in the midst of what may be uh, another global pandemic with COVID-19 coronavirus and a lot of people are flying into states of panic I don't know what it's like in the US but at the moment we're experiencing panic buying here in the UK people are are, uh, shopping up vast quantities of toilet roll and hand sanitizer and foodstuffs the supermarkets are sitting empty a lot of people are afraid of being isolated and sort of locked in their homes. In a world where there is so much fear, how do you, as a person, as a Christian, as a spiritual person, how do you stem that fear or that, that anxiety? What keeps you kind of centered and grounded? Well, I have to work at it every single day because it's very easy to, to be afraid. I think that if my husband were not in hospital and I didn't have to go out every day, I would be holing up. You know, I'm of the age where if someone catches coronavirus, it's it's very serious. I tend to be a really healthy person, but the one time that I did come close to death in, in this life um, was in my early 40s. I was in France and I got the flu and almost died of the flu. And so it, it's very easy to to be thinking, oh my gosh, you know, to to look at at anyone. And, and think, you know, or do, do they have it? You know, is that a dangerous person? And so all I can do 
is number one is meditate. I had a wonderful uh, experience on my podcast a couple of, of weeks ago. I had a lovely uh, guest, Ruby Warrington, who's kind of a new age uh, it girl. And she's written a material girl, mystical world. And then she uh, she read my book, The Good Karma Diet and went vegan. Although she said, well, she's not quite vegan. She still sometimes has some cheese. But anyway, she's utterly delightful. And we were talking about meditation and transcendental meditation, which we we both practice. And I said, I've never gotten that second daily meditation down. And she said, well, let, let's do it for 40 days. This is the first day of Lent. So she said, let, let's just um, connect with each other when we've done the second meditation. And it's so interesting. I feel that some of these coincidences and serendipities are so important because right now with the fears of the coronavirus, with my dealing with my husband being injured and, you know, life is is complex right now in the larger world for me and my personal world. And so just that connection, there's a beautiful affirmation from Paramahansa Yogananda. And I read this in his book, Metaphysical Meditations, when I was moving back from London just before I turned 19. So I've remembered this for a long time, and it is, at the center of peace I stand, nothing can harm me here. And I'm finding that so comforting right now that whatever is going on around me is going on around me, and I have to do sensible things like stocking up on (laughs) tissues and I have to do necessary things like get out and go visit my husband in the hospital, even though I would really like to be holed up reading all of these books that I have that I might never read in this life if I didn't have a, a reason not to go out for weeks or months or whatever this thing turns out to be. But to just know that I can do what I need to do and still know that at the center of peace I stand, and that in some sense, maybe not in the material sense that we can see, but but at some level, nothing can harm me here. I think that's the thing in the chaos and the madness of the world. We do have to hold on to these words. I've, I've had similar experiences in an ayahuasca ceremony I experienced once where a very strong message said to me, do not surrender to despair because there is so much despair in this world and I often feel like it's a bit of a black hole, a kind of vortex that can suck you in and draw you in and stop you from doing good work and and making those necessary changes to shift and pull humanity into a a brighter future. Speaking of um, shifting humanity, you run a fantastic platform called Main Street Vegan and you have an academy as well. Tell us about the academy and, and how it works and what you teach people. Oh, thank you. It's almost like asking to see, you know, pictures of my family. When people ask about my academy, it's like, oh, thank you. Thank you. So (laughs) Main Street Vegan Academy has been around since 2012 at this point. It's an in-person life experience, six days in New York City, where you're taught by some of the best and brightest uh, people in the vegan world. You mentioned fashion designer Joshua Catcher. He's on our faculty. Uh, So we have 
all kinds of amazing people in the world of animal rights, environmentalism, health, medicine, vegan business, everything that will give people the background that they need in vegan principles, communication principles, and business principles to go out there into the world and do vegan in a bigger way. So the certification is coach and educator, and a lot of people are doing that mostly on a part-time basis, but some of our graduates have started businesses and they're out there making vegan cowboy boots or running a cooking school or having a convenience store or an ice cream company. I mean, it's just astonishing um, what happens. And and it's it's an adventure. So there are so many wonderful ways to learn about vegan and, and get training and certification. And I think it's great to get as many as you can, just almost collect them. But what's special about Main Street Vegan Academy is it is a life experience. We do field trips in New York City, which is, you know, like London, one of the great uh, vegan cities. And then the connection with the instructors, with the people in your class and, and with the alumni who've gone before that you get to know through a private Facebook group. It's really, really special. So we're about to have our 30th class. We have graduates now from 29 countries on six continents. I'm just so proud of it and, and just so grateful that the inspiration to start it came to me and that people showed up and uh, it's a thing in the world doing good. Sounds wonderful. Maybe if I'm uh, in New York at some point in the future, I can come along and uh, support the academy in some way to to write about it or to to support it to uh, to to uh, talk about media or technology. Uh, oh, that would be amazing! How about both? <laughs> mm, absolutely, I'd love that. Maybe a, a celebration of the end of the coronavirus, a nice trip to New York City. That would be great. I'd love that. To wrap things up, I uh, always ask my guests this final question. If you were stuck on a desert island and it was just you and a pig, <laughs> obviously you're not going to eat the pig because you're a vegan, but you and your pig friend are stuck on an island and if I gave you one vegan dish, one book and one music album, what would you take with you? Oh my goodness. Well, first I would be so thrilled to be there with a pig. <laughs> oh yes, pigs. God outdid himself with the pig. Okay, one vegan dish, that would be the vegan mac and cheese that I have been making for 40 years, came from an old Seventh-day Adventist book called Ten Talents, and um, it is in my book, Main Street Vegan, a baked cheese spaghetti casserole. It's fabulous, and I think the pig would enjoy it too. You know what? I think, Robbie, I would have to say the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. Because even though I'm not an alcoholic, it's that program that gave me the recovery from my compulsive eating. And I find an endless fount of, of wisdom there. Musical album. It would be an old mix CD that I have held on to because my daughter made it for me when I was trying to figure out how on earth I could ever make it to New York City from the Midwest, which is much cheaper than New York City, at the age of 50. And so she put on this mix CD every song from Broadway shows 
that lets you know you can do absolutely anything. So climb every mountain. And if they could see me now and um, that, that wonderful thing from Man of La Mancha, where you just know that anything is possible. And my pig and I there on the desert island could know that too. Amazing. Victoria Moran, it has been an absolute honor and a privilege to talk to you as always. I've loved it. Thank you, Robbie. My pleasure. Thanks for joining us on the Plant-Based News Podcast. I've been your host, Robbie Lockie. We'll be back next week with more veganism, fashion, food, technology, nutrition, science, life and love, and everything else in between. <laughs>